Good morning. My name is Jill Barnett, and uh, today we're going to introduce you to the chapel class. Um, the chapel class is made up of uh, an older generation, but we welcome anybody in all ages. We do meet, obviously, we're in the chapel. The Wynn Chapel is directly inside the front uh, main entrance, and we meet there every week, and we would, uh, invite you to come. I am the lead elder in that class, and I am joined with Ken Safford and Bill Wheeler and with uh, Dennis Zimmerman, the other elders in that class. We are privileged to have Dennis as our teacher, and uh, he is going through the book of Luke. And so you'll get a little sample of that this morning. I think Luke chapter 5 is where we'll be this morning. And I hope that uh, you will be encouraged by that, and hopefully you can join us uh, when Sunday schools restart. Before he comes, let me go ahead and pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day of rest, this day of gladness, this day of celebration, this day that you have set aside among others that we can come to your house and worship you. I pray that you bless our time this morning. I pray that your servant this morning would have the words only that you can give him through your Holy Spirit, that spirit of the apostles and the prophets. I pray that you would uh, allow your word to go out and to be a sharp sword. I pray that you're we would claim that promise, Lord, that your word not, would not return void unto you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to look at Luke chapter 5 this morning, if you will. I'm going to do something profoundly difficult. I'm going to catch you up <laughs> to where we're picking up. In the mid 16th century, John Calvin was expelled from his pulpit and was gone for three years. When he got back, he picked right up where he left off in preaching through Psalms. I can just imagine him saying, now you remember we're about to take up Psalm 51. <laughs> We've not been going three years, but we're going to pick up with Luke chapter 5. I'll give you a little bit of background before we get to there. We have a writing here by Luke, the physician. It's reminiscent of a classical style of Greek. That was the way that he wrote. It's the kind of opening that you might imagine you'd see in a literary book when you read the beginning of Luke. He wrote it for a wide circulation. And I hope you'll see that in the names of the people he brings up and the course of his writing. Not only here, but he picks up again in the book of Acts later. He addresses Theophilus. Sounds like a good Greek name, doesn't it? Uh, that's intentional. This is a message for the wide world. This isn't particularly for Israel, but it's a message to all people everywhere. And that would include, of course, the Greeks. We have a number of things here. We have a neat and orderly account that's based on eyewitnesses. And there's some probability that he may have even spoken to Mary, the mother of Jesus, while he was compiling this record of the life of Christ. It gives us, the, in preparation for the Lord, a very full account of John the Baptist, fuller than any of the Gospels give us. Very interesting to read and learn about him. We're told of his birth, his father Zechariah's response to that promise of the birth, his lack of faith, that is. We're foretold the birth of Christ, and we 
told about the relationship between these female relatives, Elizabeth and Mary, and the uh, cordiality there and the interesting byplay of these two pregnant women with two significant children they were carrying. And that's ended with the Mary's Magnificat describing all of this in her words. Well, beyond that, we get to the actual birth of Jesus Christ, the setting, how it's heralded by the angels and the shepherds coming to foretell about this and greet him. We learn of his consecration to God in the temple and how he's hailed by the prophets there, Anna and Simeon, who were waiting for this Messiah. What a blessing that is. We learn of the growth of Jesus, his consecration back there at the temple, and then later at the time of Passover as a 12-year-old displays amazing wisdom from on high at 12 years of age. We learn of his ministry in Galilee, and that's where we're going to be focused today. It begins in chapter 3 and runs all the way to chapter 9 and verse 50. We see his preparation. John preaches a certain repentance and tells them of the coming of Christ with a different message, a fuller message. We see his genealogy in chapter 3. It's interesting to compare that to the one that we read in Matthew See the differences, talking about the same Messiah, however. We learn of his temptation in chapter 4. A great, a great victory. If he had been scuttled right there, what a woeful world we would live in. But he overcame. We learn of his rejection at home as he begins his ministry. Right away in his hometown, he's pushed off. They don't want to hear him. And then we see his great saving power. We come to Luke chapter 5. Prior to this, we read in verses uh, previous to this, 12 through 16, about the cleansing of a leper. The untouchable is brought to Christ and he heals him. Which brings us to another healing today, the paralytic in verse 17. Let me read for you from the Word of God. On one of those days as he was teaching... Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus." And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise up and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazing amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. 
we have here not only the healing of this paralytic, but we have a signature moment when battle lines are being drawn. The Pharisees are present here, and it's not a particularly good experience in this setting. There's five things I want you to see about this. In verse 17, you'll see battle lines are being drawn right away with the presence of the Pharisees coming to see Jesus. Verses 18 to 20, he, Jesus, seems to issue a challenge to these men, these Pharisees, these men of the word, as it were. Then we get down to uh, verse 21, we see the result of that challenge. Verses 22 to 25, we see the Lord's victory. And verse 26, how he is glorified. Let's look at verse 17, the setting of this where the lines are drawn. On one of those days, this is what you might call Luke language. He doesn't usually focus on one particular day of the week or year, but he does say it in a manner like this. The time isn't really clear exactly when, but it is at the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry. We have similar accounts in Mark 1 and Matthew 19. It seems to be early based on those three corroborative stories early in his earthly ministry. And already there's controversy. There was that also in the Gospel of John. Not one of the synoptic Gospels, but early there in chapter 5. Jesus heals on the Sabbath and he's confronted by the Pharisees. Right from the get-go, there was conflict. Our Savior knew that and he's ready for this here. Look what he's doing. He is teaching. Rabbi extraordinary in this passage. He's come to teach. Of course, he's teaching the Word of God, which he is. It's interesting when you study this passage to see the contrast between the living Word, Jesus Christ, and the hypocritical religious leaders called Pharisees. The the barriers are set up right away in the two parties. They're Pharisees and teachers of the law who've come, it says, from every village. That's a generic way of saying they're from all over. We don't know if every village had Pharisees in it. Some were very small. But they're from from all parts of Galilee. And they're here to hear, not just to hear in a receptive way, perhaps as you are today, but they're here to hear in a way where they can bring repute upon this one. The Pharisees and teachers who came from every village, they probably came to a large house. After all, they had to be accommodated. A lot of people are coming. They want to hear, what's this man have to say? What's this all about? And they knew, had word of his teaching. They weren't living in the dark. Who are these Pharisees? Well, the term Pharisee means to separate. So you would envision them being holy men. They were, the first mention of them is right here in this gospel. They're one of four religious sects of this time. They believe to have risen in the intertestament period, and they probably died away after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. But they were here appointed at this time to be what we would consider a thorn in the side of our Messiah, our Savior. These who were to be separate came to this one. They did believe in some good things. And we'll talk about that briefly. 
Uh, Josephus estimates there were about 6,000 of them, but like I said, they probably disappeared after the destruction of the temple. They are mentioned prominently in John chapter 7, where we read about Nicodemus, who was one of them. He was also a, a little different than the Pharisees we read about here in Luke. You might also remember another Pharisee of some repute from the book of Acts. You got any idea who I'm talking about? A guy named Gamaliel, famous student, fellow named Paul. We have some upside to this sect called Pharisee, but that's not true here. They did believe in the resurrection. We read of that in Acts chapter 23. That is unlike the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. They also believed in angels and demons and human responsibility. They had a zeal for the law. You can see that right here. But it was misplaced zeal. Our Lord in other places rebuked them. Matthew 15, we read this. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? They had that zeal that was misplaced, misguided outside of the law of God. What was going on there? It was the one about the washing of hands, how they were accusing Christ's disciples in this matter. And then in Luke, later in our book of study, chapter 11, we read this. Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Our Lord knew their hearts. Those who believed in the resurrection did not believe in the resurrection and the life, how Jesus is characterized in Scripture. Well, other sects about this time included the Sadducees that I just talked about, members of the Sanhedrin. They were elite, wealthy people, unlike the Pharisees who seemed to be middle-class religious servants, who did not believe in the resurrection. We also have the Zealots, revolutionaries seeking freedom from Rome. They were a religious, if you will, sect. And the Essenes, an aesthetic and monastic group. But here in particular, this case, we have these, the Pharisees. Teachers of the law, lawyers, scribes, they made a lifetime study of this law, but overlooked the one who came to fulfill the law. They had heard of Jesus. They had heard of his power to heal. They were, if you will, here to see it. They get to see this in person. I wonder if the thought went through their mind, is this the Messiah? Is this the one we're looking for? Well, their reaction would say, no. In their minds, this wasn't the Messiah. He had all the power that was given to the Son of God. But it's also good to remember that he was more than that. He was the God-man. Philippians characterizes him this way in Philippians 2. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He was God-man. Perhaps that was a barrier to their thinking, these Pharisees. But in this role, he came and had to deal after showing this particular power in the presence of these particular religious leaders. He had a battle on his hand. They came, I believe, with a spirit of malice and envy to look upon Christ. 
I don't know if you've ever come to church that way before you were a believer. Yeah, I'll go if you make me. (laughs) But I'm not inclined to listen to any of this nonsense, in quotes. Well, in that case, we see second, in that context, we see secondly what happens in verses 18 to 20. Putting that before us, we read, Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, talking about Jesus, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Can you imagine (laughs) what went through the minds of the Pharisees? What would go through your mind if somebody said that to you? Your sins are forgiven. They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. That is instructive in and of itself. They must have known about him. I don't know if they had believing faith towards salvation, but they believed that Jesus could heal. And they, these four men, took him to go before Jesus. They get there and they can't get through because of the crowd. In this house where they had to be meeting, and we know there's a lot of Pharisees, there are a lot of scribes, others who've come, it's crowded. They can't get him before Christ. What are they going to do? We've come all this way for his healing Well, they didn't turn around and go home. Not being able to get through the crowd, they go up on the roof, let him down through the tiles into the presence of Jesus. This physical wretch who couldn't move himself, they take him up there, paralyzed. Maybe he had a spinal cord injury, something done to his brain that affected his motor skills. We're not given that background. But he could not move. He's paralyzed. So he had to be carried. Think of this man, please, in the context of Scripture. I believe he had to be a man of faith. He wanted to go see Jesus. I need to be healed. This man, I heard, does it. I don't have the ability, (laughs) but I need to go. He still knew that Jesus had the ability to heal, but beyond that, he probably knew Jesus had an inclination to do that. The record of his ministry, even up to this point, was that he was inclined to heal people. What love, what what gentleness in our Savior. Well, look at his friends. They're determined to get to Jesus. I don't know how far they came from. They carried him all the way. All right, we're here. We're close. There's the house he's in. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. We can't get in. Can you imagine trying to get in the Bon Secours Center to see a playoff game carrying a man on a bed trying to get through that crowd or leaving the game in Atlanta after watching the Braves trying to get out through that great body of people? But his friends, even after they'd come all that way and met that obstacle, were determined to get to Jesus. I don't know how far away they were, but I can imagine it wasn't easy. It probably would have taken, I envisioned four people carrying this. Probably would have took at least six to carry me. Uh, I don't weigh just a small amount. But they didn't give up. The obstacle was not going to deter them. They did what it took for their friend. 
Is that faith? Yes. You know what else it is? Without a doubt, it's a demonstration of Christian love. What a lesson that is for us. They know he is beyond human help, so they are going to get to Jesus, whatever it takes. They go with courage and with resourcefulness here. Don't we need friends like that? We have a koinonia ministry here. If you aren't plugged in, why not? Can't you be a friend like this? Won't you be? Don't we need friends like that? Don't we need to be friends like that? How far will you go for a Christian brother or sister? You know, we'll take great pains when we're in earnest. I have a grandchild that gets up every day on his own and gets a ride somehow or other to a local high school, we're talking about summertime, so he can practice soccer. It's admirable. (laughs) Let's translate that over to the religious side. How far will you go? What will keep you from the Lord in your walk, physically able to? A disease, perhaps, that's affected us for some time. Other things as well. We need courage, resourcefulness. We need to get through. If you, I don't even know how to picture this. If you were trying to woo a young lady, there wouldn't be much that would stop you from getting in her presence to talk to her, to take her out to dinner or something. We need friends like this and we need to be friends like this. Once on the roof, they lower his bed down through the tiles right before Jesus. There were tiles there most likely. They had to be cleared away. A hole still had to be made to get this bed down in front of Christ. They were willing to do that, resourceful enough to do it, and they're not going to be deterred. Once on the roof, they lower him. And this man's need isn't stated here, but it's very obvious, isn't it? Or is it? Let's ask ourselves that question. What happens when he's lowered there? What do we read? They lowered him in the midst, and when he saw their faith, again, talking about Christ, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Up to this verse, we don't have any indication that they're taking him there because he needs the Lord for salvation. The man hasn't said a word about I've coming I've come to repent and confess. The friends who have carried him don't say anything about that. What's going on there? Well it's a lesson that this is God man here, not just man walking the earth. This is God who in his omniscience knows the heart of this disabled man. He knew his primary, that is, Jesus knew this paralytic's primary need, the forgiveness of sins. We pray every Wednesday through a long litany of people who have physical needs. And sometimes it uh, burdens the heart not to see more spiritual needs on there. Isn't that the primary need of every one of us? Isn't that one of the reasons we're here today? Isn't that the reason... A group of our very dedicated men go downtown every Thursday night. Why some of us are in the prison ministry. This is man's greatest need. 
We can pray for all the healing. And I'm all for that. You know I've got a son in need. But listen, even in the healing, there's still an end to life. There's a day of judgment. There's a facing the Lord to talk about our sins. The omniscient God, God man, knew the paralytic's primary need. Remember what Matthew 1.21 said about Jesus? You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now let me put a hyphen in there or parentheses. This is not to say that this paralytic's problem was caused by sin. We know that's not the case. Over in uh, John chapter 9, we know about a blind man who was brought to Jesus and his disciples asked, was it his sin or his parents? The answer was neither one, basically. It was for the honor of the Lord. It was that Christ would be glorified in this situation. But it's interesting before we leave this and look at the physical healing to think how serious Jesus takes sin. He looked at this man who had no way of getting around. He knew obviously he had a physical need. But Jesus was not taking lightly his spiritual need. He needed to be healed of his sins. He knew, that is, Christ knew, his primary need was a saving relationship. And bless the name of the Lord, he deals with that before he even touches him with regard to his physical need. Sovereignty and salvation, isn't it? Our God saves him even though he didn't come asking for that. But that was his need. And I don't think he turned it down. Well, verse 21, we see the result of what Jesus did here in the third place. Listen, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The foes of Jesus go on the attack right away. Who is this to forgive sins? It's interesting to see in verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, they haven't even articulated these concerns, if you will, but he knew what they were thinking. They were thinking, who is this? Once again, Jesus demonstrates his divinity, which is important in this passage here. He knew what they were thinking. Every time I read this over and getting ready for this Sunday morning, I kept stopping to pray. I know you know my thoughts, Lord. Please forgive me. Every day there's something that gets in there that exhibits the old man in my thoughts. We have to be concerned about this. Christ is. He exhibited his divine authority to forgive these sins and these Pharisees did not like it. In fact, they hated him for this, but Jesus knew it. This is probably the first time in Luke that strong opposition to the scribes and Pharisees is uh, clear to us, but it won't be the last time. There'll be many others. Listen what they're saying, verse 21. Who is this? Who can do this? It's like a derogatory thing. It's like somebody coming up to you and saying, who are you? What are you trying to tell me that for? Who are you? 
I imagine they've heard that on Thursday nights on Main Street. Who are you? Well, I'm just a sinner like you, but by God's grace, I've been found out, been given new life. They knew the law. They figured this was blasphemy. Interesting though, isn't it? How does Christ confront them? Based on what he knew they were thinking. These keepers of the law, these Pharisees who were spiritual leaders, did not get out from behind the cloak of cowardliness and confront Jesus Christ. They didn't get in his face and say, you're blaspheming. At this point in the gospel record, that didn't take place. But he still knew what they were thinking. They were thinking in ungodly ways. Who are you? Who are you to do this? But God knew their thoughts. Verse 20, their question is answered. One of the things they're doing here is working from a wrong premise. I think I heard it in the army or something. They were demonstrating what's called stinking thinking. They had things backward. I think it's Philip Ryken who lays this out for us. Logic calls for us to have a major premise, a minor premise, and then a conclusion. The Pharisees' major premise is this. Only God can forgive sins. Their minor premise is this. For God to do so, uh, for man to do so, is blasphemy. So their conclusion, of course, is Jesus is blaspheming. Like many other areas of so-called religious leaders' lives, Christ has turned that on its head. The major premise is this, only God can forgive sins. But now it takes a turn. The minor premise is this, this man forgives sins. The conclusion is he must be God or he has God's power. That is the right conclusion about this man, Jesus Christ. The Pharisees don't see it. Well, in verses 22 to 25, look at the Lord's victory here. Verse 22, we see he perceived their thoughts. In Mark, it says he realized in his spirit. In Matthew, it puts it more succinct. He saw, he saw what they were thinking. Verse 23, direct question here to them. <laughs> it would have been interesting to see what their answer was. Which is, it easy, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiving you or to say rise up and walk? Which is easier? Figure that out and tell me. Well, for Christ, I might say they were both equally within his power. You know, it'd be easy to say someone, your sins are forgiven. What's going on? It's a work inside in the heart. What proof do we have? None immediately. We may years down the road as we see people's sanctification evident. So no one would see. So they, perhaps they thought, well, that's easy. Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. What proof do we have? Or what about healing? Is that easier? Well, that's what they wanted. They wanted to see something. They didn't have hearts to believe. What if there's no cure? You can see that. The man doesn't get up, doesn't walk away. Okay, your hypocrisy is proven. You say you can heal, but you haven't done it. And then you could say perhaps it's blasphemy. But neither of those are true. They have come to find fault and don't find it. 
the man is healed. And because Christ is who he says, that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He doesn't say to heal. The man, the Son of God, the Son of Man has authority. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. His authority is substantiated. It is proven to be true when this man gets up and picks up his bed and goes home. Christ didn't wait for their answer. He says that you may know this is true. What is the sadness of all this? That though the Pharisees knew, they still got their hackles up. They were mad. They were angry. They were set against Jesus Christ. Very interesting. This is the first use of that term which Jesus liked to call himself the Son of Man. It's used 25 other times in Luke. What's interesting about this is it is non-nationalistic. Remember we were talking about Luke wanted people to see the gospel is for all the nations. Christ talks about himself as the Son of Man. He is with us. He's not somewhere way up there that we can't approach like perhaps the God of the Pharisees. Luke wants us to know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's pretty inclusive. Let me remind you of John chapter 4. Remember Christ came, dealt with the Samaritan woman. Well, later, a lot of times we stop right there. But later that message got out in Samaria and we read this. These Samaritans say to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Christ's message was getting out. It was going beyond Jerusalem. It was going to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What a blessing that was. And then we read, after he told him to rise up, immediately he rose up before them, That's great to read. Before them, the Pharisees were there, picked up what he had been lying on and went home, comma, glorifying God. What a reaction. We cannot thwart God. We can't keep him from doing all his perfect will. And what a blessing that we can't. Can you imagine this man's exaltation? Can you imagine the party when he got home? I trust he might have gone to the temple first. I don't know. Or if he wasn't near the temple, to another place of worship. Verse 26, the last thing. Jesus is glorified in all this. Amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. That means this amazement thing. In Matthew, he describes it as all struck. In Mark, it said they were astonished. This is beyond belief. Here it says they were seized with it. It's like a, I don't know, it's a force that they couldn't deal with, but it seized them. My friends, I would ask you, have you ever been a... I know there's none of you here have been brought up from a bed like this man, but have you ever been seized with a knowledge of our triune and awesome God? Have you ever thought about His perfect holiness, His power, His presence, 
to such an extent that you were like this, seized with awe, in amazement at who our God is. Well, I hope that spirit grips you as you go into worship. The last thing I'd have you to see here is this. And the scribes and the Pharisees said, nothing. What could they say? There is no record of them saying a word here. Our God had his way. To this paralytic's wonder, amazement, and probably thankful heart. What a God we serve. I don't see our friend I was going to ask to close in prayer, so let me close in prayer. Our God and Father, we are humble before you. You know our hearts. Father, we're moved to confess our sins even this day, especially as we seek to worship you with pureness. Pray that you take this broken vessel, this leaky vessel, and use what has been poured out here for your honor and glory. May we see Christ in a new and fuller way. May we be pleased to worship him, standing in awe, humbly seeking to be like our Savior. We ask in his name. Amen. Thank you for your attention.